Welcome to the Etymology Rules Podcast. I'm Brittany Salali Bay. I'm the founder of Etymology Rules, which is a language-based educational company. And Etymology Rules envisions itself equipping, equipping people worldwide with the knowledge and power of words. And our mission is to educate people to be word-conscious communicators and to foster better communication that reshapes and builds new perspectives for today's society. This is the first podcast that I've recorded in 2021. Today is actually February 7th, 2021. So not only is it the new year, but this is also Black History Month. So shout out Black History Month. And, you know, I know everybody was all like, fuck 2020. 2021 is going to be a better year. And I'm here for the optimism and the hope because I definitely think we need it. Um, On the other hand, 2021 start off on some real bullshit. Uh, I don't have to rehash the ridiculousness of of the storming of the Capitol and insurrectionists and um, you know these these people who just won't accept that Trump lost. That motherfucker lost. He gone. Okay. So um, just with that at the head of the year. While I am very happy to see Trump gone, I'm happy to see Biden in office. Um, I'm happy to hear about the vaccine. I I don't think that we are in the clear. And so I I really am urging people to continue to stay masked up, to to continue to socially distance themselves. Um, I definitely don't think that schools should be reopening, you know, it's just, we ain't there yet. We're really not there. I am a teacher and um, I have students who tell me things like, yeah, this weekend I went to a birthday party um, and it was not outdoors or I was at Six Flags. I'm like, Six Flags? Dog, it's a pandemic. Like, why is Six Flags even open, you know? Um, and then like for me to be back in the building with said students, it's just really concerning. So that's where I stand. But I I know y'all aren't here to hear pandemic talk. You can hear that anywhere, everywhere. I know you're not here to necessarily hear just straight politics. I hope that y'all are here to hear about language and etymology. So one thing that's new to the Etymology Rules podcast is my Etymology Rules book list, where I share what I've read and what I'm currently reading and why it's important to me and just my thoughts in general. And for those who don't follow me on social media, please do. I am on like everything, (laughs) not everything, but I'm on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. I have a Medium page, uh, Tumblr, Pinterest. Obviously, SoundCloud, that's where my podcast is. And then I'll start doing some stuff on YouTube next month. That's my goal. But um, on my Instagram and Twitter pages, I share uh, my Etymology Rules reading list. So if you want to know more about the things that I read, please check that out. But I'm going to talk to you about a couple books because I love books. I'm a reading specialist. 
I love anything that has to do with literacy and words and literature and just anything book related. I'm, that's me. And I've always been like that since I was a little girl. I used to read books. I might have told y'all this before, but I used to read books and um, my mom would have to come in and like make me turn the light off. And then I would have like a little flashlight or like one of those little book lamps. Um, and I would just like hide under the covers and still try to read. And, you know, I, I'm a big reader. So I'm really excited to share some of the good reads I've been reading. So I'm currently reading a an anthology, I guess this is. It's called Dark Matter, uh, A Century of Speculative Fiction from the African Diaspora. It's a compilation of short stories and essays edited by Cherie Thomas. And um, y'all, I'm just loving this book. Can I just say, I love Afrofuturism. I love Black speculative fiction. I can't say that I've always read this genre, but... Um, since I was introduced to it in my twenties, I just have been a fan. So let me tell you about this book. Number one, the intro to the book is everything. Uh, they start off with, uh, she, Cherie Thomas starts off asking why dark matter? Why is that the name of this book? Um, and the answer is because dark matter is a non-luminous form of matter which has not been directly observed, but whose existence has been deduced by its gravitational effects. And that aptly describes not only Black people in America and throughout the world, but also Black science fiction writers and Black, and black speculative fiction writers. Um, you know, they've had a, a major effect, major effect and influence on society and thought, but they are not seen just like dark matter. So in, uh, in the 1953 collection of cultural criticism in shadow and act Ralph Ellison cautioned readers not to stumble over that ironic obstacle, which lies in the path of anyone who would fashion a theory of American Negro culture while ignoring the intricate network of connections, which binds Negroes to the large society, larger society. To do so is to attempt a delicate brain surgery with a switchblade. And it is possible that any viable theory of Negro American culture obligates us to fashion a more adequate theory of American culture as a whole. In other words, as we better know and define ourselves, we redefine American culture. But it's this very fact that makes us dark matter. We hold gravitational pull over American culture, but are largely unseen and unheard. And this is why Invisible Man is really a proto-Afrofuturist novel, um, as, it, as it is a tale of us learning and awakening to the truth that America sees us as dark matter. And for black sci-fi and speculative fiction, speculative fiction writers, this couldn't be more true. So I've read the first eight of 20, 27 stories by authors such as Tanana Reeve Du, uh, Du Bois, Nalo Hopkinson, Samuel R. Delaney, Charles Chestnut, Linda Addison, Kalamu Yasalam, Stephen Barnes, and more. And includes five, oh, and Octavia Butler has a short story in there too excited to read. It includes five essays, including one by Octavia Butler and one by Walter Mosley. So I, once again, am enjoying this read so much and I will share my favorite story with you 
once I finish the book. But one little piece of information that's exciting for me is that the intro references a play that I was in. When I was in college, I was a part of the African American Theater Club. And one production we put on was called A Day of Absence. And it was written by Obie Award winner Douglas Turner Ward who described himself as a Negro playwright committed to examining the contours, context, and depth of his experiences from an unfettered, imaginative Negro angle of vision. So in this play, it's a, it's a, it's a satire, excuse me, it's a satire, uh, Ward basically creates a world where Black people have disappeared. They vanish mysteriously. And, you know, what does the world look like without black people? Well, in this play, uh, a lot of things couldn't get done because black people were, are behind and run every aspect of society. Uh, you know, we are we have our hand in every aspect of society. And um, even the mayor had disappeared. And that was interesting because they didn't realize that the, the mayor, he was, an, as they call it in the story, a nigra. So um, just... A lot of memories come to mind when I think of this, of Dark Matter. And um, again, just something I'm very much enjoying reading. So highly suggested on my end. As far as what I have read, I just finished two books, Salvage the Bones and Sing Unburied Sing, both by Jessamyn Ward. Um, what pulled me to these two books is the setting. It takes place in the Deep South. And my father is from Alabama. And he's a lot in a, excuse me, a large number of my family members live there and in Mississippi where both Salvage the Bones and Sing Unburied Sing take place. And I used to love traveling to Alabama each summer. I used to love spending time with my grandmama, um, rest in power to her. She passed um, when I was, ugh, I think, in middle school. And um, I learned black culture of the Deep South. It is definitely different from where I grew up and where I currently live. So I grew up in Northern Virginia and I currently live in DC. But um, while black culture is black culture throughout the US, it is definitely distinct based on where you are. So black culture of the deep South is slower. Uh, people's moves to me are a lot more deliberate and there's an honoring of ancient traditions that feels completely natural. And in both books, uh, Ward weaves a beautiful story out of tragedy. Her language pulls you in completely. It's soft, but raw. It's tender, but tough. AKA, this is real. Like the story is real. Her writing is real. Because rarely do our emotions exist in isolation. And so in Sing Unburied Sing, I wanted to hate the main character, Leone. But the reality is she is our aunties, our cousins, and maybe our own mamas who struggle with grief and loss or addiction and betrayal and how they cope, how they get through sometimes may cause new traumas and the cycle is reborn. So in Salvage the Bones, my main takeaway is family over everything and how love literally pushes and, and, and pushes us to endure is the takeaway from Sing Unburied Sing. Love literally pushes us to endure. So those are the books I'm reading. Um, I'm also reading one other book I guess I'll mention. It's called Linguistic Justice. It's by April Baker Bell, but I've just started it, so I don't have enough that to say at this point. 
but I, I read the intro and I'm halfway through the first chapter. Let me just tell y'all, oh, that book is the truth. And I will be doing a whole podcast on linguistic justice. Loving it. Okay. Another new feature of the Etymology Rules podcast is uh, taking a look at current events and looking at language in particular and how it has an impact on various aspects of society right now. So my current event, if you if you don't know about it, you're going to learn about it, but I'm not giving this woman too much space on my podcast because she is what we call Big Wild. So she gets a snippet. And that is Marjorie Taylor Greene and her toxic language. If you haven't heard by now, Marjorie Taylor Greene is a Republican member of the House of Representatives. She represents Georgia's 14th district and she is batshit crazy. So the 14th district, let me tell you a little bit about it. It borders Tennessee to the north and Alabama to the west. It was redrawn in 2010 to include a Republican populace. So the rest of its boundaries are drawn, leaving the district an odd shape with jagged lines to the east and the west, in the south. Um, a Republican voter said this about Marjorie in uh, an article in The New Yorker. It was from October 9th, 2020. She said, there's nothing she can do to lose my vote unless she murdered a baby or something. Nothing. Y'all. What's I'm jumping ahead, but what's most concerning about this woman and people who support her is that these are the people who voted for Trump. And it was the fact that it was a close call lets me know that. And it should let everybody know it should be a wake up call to everybody that we really aren't as progressive as we think we are as a nation. Let me say it again. We really are not progressive as we think we are as a nation. I mean, I, I'm, I'm born, I was born in the 80s. I grew up in the 90s. I just, I know people thought we were in a post-racial world, but clearly we aren't. And I never thought that, but I hope that this is a wake-up call to people that we sure as hell are not. Um, a little bit more though. So the 14th, Georgia's 14th district, the constituents are as follows, 85% white, 15% college educated, and most are making below the medium income. It's also home to many heretical religious believers and 75% voted for Trump. They voted to keep, they also voted to keep a statue of the first grand wizard of the KKK in the time where um, I guess one form of recourse against racial injustice is tearing down statues of of um, race, racist people. And um, like, that's a whole nother conversation. <laughs> like, is, what is the, I mean, yeah, that's symbolically a great gesture, but when jails are filled with mostly black men, when the poverty affects mostly black people, when school um, schools are not educating black children, you know, take tearing down a statue don't mean shit to me. That's just me though. Anyway, I I will go on. So Marjorie believes in QAnon, 
Uh, she's a Islamophobic and she's also an anti-masker. She attacked Daniel Hogg, a gun control activist and Parkland shooting survivor. And she posted a picture of herself holding a rifle next to images of the squad, like the dopest women in Congress um, who are all progressives and um, who are women of color who... Um, maybe Muslim, some are Muslim. You know, I'm just saying that they are all the things that she stands against. So she gonna ha post a picture of herself holding a rifle next to pictures of these women. And the words below say, we need, said, we need strong conservative Christians to go on the offense against these socialists who want to rip our country apart. The post was subsequently removed by Facebook for violating the platform's policy against inciting violence. She's most recently filed articles of impeachment against President Biden, claiming he illegally assumed the office of the president of the United States. And she called for the execution of Nancy Pelosi, accusing her of treason because she opposed the border wall. I told y'all she bat she bashed shit crazy. Um, now, this reminds me of why a group that I would say I'm a part of. And um, not only am I a part of a group, but the same people who run that group have a, mm, I guess like a webinar, uh, YouTube, it's, it plays on YouTube, but it's a show uh, that people are invited to attend. It's called Octavia Tried to Tell Us. It's run by Tanana, Tanana Reeve Du and Monica Coleman. Um, and like I'll go more into that in another episode, but Octavia tried to tell us basically is reminding us that Octavia Butler wrote about all the things that are happening right now, particularly in Parable of the Sower, where, well, Parable and the Talents, even more so, there was a politician running for president under the slogan, Make America Great Again. He was a Christian conservative. He's trying to uh, force the country to adopt his views and you know it was basically what we have seen for the past four years in that book that Octavia Butler wrote in the early 90s so that's why a lot of people call her a literary prophet I myself do I think she's amazing one of my favorite authors of all times but anyway I'm a part of this Octavia tried to tell us group and um, Marjorie Green Taylor and others like her reminds me, remind me of why the Octavia tried to tell us movement is critical. She tried to tell us that the racist Christian fundamentalists still exist, even in 2020. And like I said, she told us that 30 years ago. She, she didn't just try to tell us, she did tell us that 30 years ago. Did we listen? Or as I said earlier, did people think that we were in a post-racial progressive society because, oh, what, we elected Barack Obama, like not no shade to Obama. I'm saying just his election alone doesn't negate the fact that there are many, many minds that want to do not want to see black people or people of color progress. So uh, I actually listened to congressional members speak on why Marjorie's language is toxic harmful and anti-democratic. This was prior to a vote to remove her from her committee assignments, which were the Committee on Budget and the Committee on Education and Labor. As a teacher, I don't want this woman having any added influence over what happens to children because honestly, these kids are our only hope for a better future. Uh, Whitney Houston said it best. 
Yes, the greatest love of all. Uh, I believe the children are our future. And my Afrofuturist work is in teaching children and fighting those that seek to miseducate. You know, she is pro-God, pro-life, and pro-guns. And that speaks to a lot of her supporters. Um, and one person who supports her says and that they support her just because she is pro-God, pro-life, and pro-guns. And they say that we are hunters and we're all about the Second Amendment. And hearing Marjorie Green talk about being pro-guns and pro-God and pro-life is really what made this person jump on board. Um, just a little bit more to share, because like I said, she can't get too much of my time here. And she, in 2019, in January, 2019, Green liked a comment that said a bullet to the head would be quicker to remove House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. And another post, Green liked comments about executing FBI agents who, in her eyes, were part of the deep state working against Trump. That's that QAnon bullshit. Um, and then after Democratic, Repo uh, Democratic Representative Jimmy Gomez called on Green to be expelled from the House for her role in the insurrection. Green condemned the violence at the Capitol and falsely accused Antifa slash BLM terrorism and Democratic politicians of stoking the insurrection. She says, I fully condemn all violence. The Antifa BLM terrorism funded on Act Blue rests with Democrat accomplices like Cori Bush, Elon, Kamala Harris, AOC, Tim Kaine, and many more. Those who stoke insurrection and spread conspiracies have blood on their hands. They must be expelled. <sighs> and then lastly, hearing about Marjorie Green prompted me to do some research on political language. And I came across this article from 2003. And it's citing research from George Lakoff a UC Berkeley, Berkeley professor of linguistics and cognitive science who says that conservatives have spent decades defining their ideas, carefully choosing the, with choosing the language with which to present them and building an infrastructure to communicate them. And he says the work is paid off by dictating the terms of national debate. Conservatives have put progressives firmly on the defense. I think that has been shifting. I think progressives and Democrats have kind of been putting, and I would have to do some research to, to prove this, but I think there's been more of an effort to, you know, really get tight around the language to promote progressive ideology. And I think that the Marjorie Greens of this country, uh, they really are now on the defense and their defensive tactics are to spew out this hatred language, this hate, this language of hatred, because it really speaks to those who um, share her ideas. Like basically she, she figured out and conservatives have figured out what language they need to use to combat progressivism and that language happens to be extremely toxic. So, um, you know, stay tuned. We'll see what, what happens in 2021. 
and um, what we see from conservatives, what we see from blatant racists, what we see from people who don't want to see the liberation of those who have historically been oppressed by white, wealthy males in this country. I mean, because those, you know, they're the ones who, even though Marjorie Greene is a woman, is still a man pulling the strings, um, men having dominance, really within both political parties, but particularly in the Republican Party. So um, let's move on from that and let's get into today's topic. So the title of this podcast is What's in a Name? And this is to reflect that, again, it's Black History Month and the title of Black History Month itself reflects that it's a month to talk about the historical accomplishments and just the culture of Black people in America. But you know, we weren't always called Black. Black people were not always called Black. Uh, as one of my favorite rappers, Taleb Kweli, states, all right, that's from Four Women by Tilib Kweli. And like he says, we went from nigga to colored to Negro to black to Afro, then African-American and right back to nigga. So that's what I'm going to talk about today. That's, that's why this is titled What's in a Name? So first, let's talk about Black History Month. For those who don't know the origin, you're going to know today. So Black History Month started off as Black History Week, and it was established by Carter G. Woodson. He was born to parents who had both been slaves. Neither his mother nor his father could read or write, and Woodson had to learn, had to work to earn money for his family, and he did not start school until later than most children. But his model was, it's never too late to learn. He eventually became a high school teacher and was said to discover that none of the schools taught the history of black Americans. So he started the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History to study the important things black people had accomplished. And on February 19th, 1926, Woodson established Negro History Week. So full appreciation of the celebration of Black History Month requires a review in Woodson chose February for reasons of tradition and reform. It is commonly said that Woodson selected February to encompass the birthdays of two great Americans who played a prominent role in shaping Black history, namely Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass, whose birthdays are the 12th and the 14th respectively. And more, but more importantly, he chose them for reasons of tradition. Since Lincoln's assassination in 1865, the black community, black community, along with other Republicans, had Republicans at the time, had been celebrating the uh, fallen president's birthday. And since the late 1890s, black communities across the country had been celebrating Douglas. Well aware of the pre-existing celebrations, Woodson built Negro History Week around traditional days of commemorating the black past. 
He was asking the public to extend their study of black history, not to create a new tradition. And in doing so, he increased his chance for success. So what I just read is an excerpt from the Association for the Study of African American Life and History, which was Carter G. Woodson's organization, which was established in 1915. So Negro History Week turned to Black History Month in the 1960s, and that was around. That was at the same time of the Black Power movement. So it's interesting. The Black uh, Negro History Week started during the Harlem Renaissance, which was a time um, in which Black intellectuals and artists were celebrated and highlighted, and they themselves celebrated and highlighted Black life and black culture and in the 1960s uh it's pretty much the same and so we uh we see black history becoming even more prominent and a focal point for black people and so the study of of our history and culture was extended to a month and um also note it went from negro history week to black history month so that's in that's in alignment with uh, what I was saying earlier, then what, how we as black people have identified ourselves, what we call ourselves has changed over time. So uh, let's get more into it. But to get more into it, we have to talk about, once again, origins. You know, etymology is all about origin of words. So it's very important to me to talk about the origins of concepts because words represent ideas and concepts. So let's talk about the origin of black as an identity. So black is one of five racial classifications according to the government. The revised standards contain the following categories, American Indian or Alaska Native. Number two is Asian. Number three is black or African American. Number four is Native Hawaiian or other Pacific Islander. And number five is white. And then there are two categories for ethnicity, Hispanic or Latino, and not Hispanic or Latino. So did these racial categories always exist? The answer to that, mm, I would say no. I would definitely say no. Um, and we'll talk about why those categories, why the classifications emerged and when. But prior to we're looking back at the ancient world. Um, there are some who contend that prior to race, that there was no discrimination based on one's racial background because race didn't exist, right? And so there's a book that's called Before Color Prejudice by Frank Snowden. And he contends that there was no concept of race in the ancient world, thus there was no concept of color prejudice. He says that people were classified by their geographical location and color was only a descriptor. The ancient Greeks held no prejudice based on color, but rather had reverence for Africans, such as the Kushites, Ethiopians, Moors, etc. And so let's talk about color as a descriptor. Among the Greeks and Romans who have provided the fullest descriptions of blacks, the Africans' color was regarded as their most characteristic, their most char characteristic and unusual feature. 
In this respect, the ancients were not unlike whites of later generations who used color terms as a kind of shorthand to denote Africans and those of African descent. The Greeks, followed by the Romans, were the first of many peoples to apply to blacks or their country names emphasizing color. Um, this would be Ethiopians, which means sunburnt, Negroes, which means black, deriving from um, a Latin word meaning black. Uh, black in itself is a term. Colored people. Balad al-Sudan, which means land of the blacks. L'Afrique La Noir and um, again, Ethiopia meaning burnt face. And this was a reflection of the environment theory that attributed the Ethiopians' color as well as their tightly coiled hair to the intense heat of the southern sun. So that comes from Before Color Prejudice by Frank Snowden. Um, he also says that in a poem by Menelius on astrology, he mentioned the groups who were to be included most frequently in a familiar classical color scheme. Ethiopians were considered the blackest. Indians were less sunburned. Egyptians mildly dark. And the Moors, whose name was derived from the color of their skin. Um, so those were like, I guess, rankings or classifications. Not rankings, but classific class descriptive classifications of well, people who we would today call black. Um, he talks a lot about how the artwork that you see on like pottery um, and just, yeah, artwork of the ancient Greeks showed black people um, doing things like fighting in, in wars or praying and other ritualistic activities. But it, it was not, he claims that these were created not in a, as a means to diminish or downgrade black people, but really to hold them in reverence, right? Um, further in the book, he says that Ethiopians were further described by their hue ranging from fushi, which means dark, to najerimi, which means very dark. He also talks about the Garamantes, who believed were believed to have lived in the area of modern Fezzan, which is modern Libya. Uh, and they were classified as Ethiopians, but they were distinguished from Ethiopians. So the point here is like you have all these terms to describe black people in the ancient world. And none of these terms were used to degrade black people or to classify them as inferior, but rather to describe them. And he says that the careers of Negroes and other dark-skinned peoples in predominantly white societies illustrated another notable aspect of the racial pattern in, in antiquity. Blacks suffered no detrimental distinctions that excluded them from opportunities, occupational, economic, or cultural, available to other newcomers in alien lands. And then lastly, he says that he doesn't, that people, that historians don't know when or how the attitude of the ancient world towards blacks developed, but one point is certain. The onus of intense color prejudice cannot be placed upon the shoulders of the ancients. Well, that's a big claim to make, that there was no racism 
in the ancient world because there was no race and that people of color, people who would be considered black were actually um, highly regarded. There's definitely a counterthought here. It's contested by several scholars, including Benjamin Isaac, and he wrote a book called The Invention of Racism in, a, in Classical Antiquity. So I'll just tell you, I'll read you a little bit from um, not his book, but a paper that he wrote prior to the book. He says, there appears to be a consensus that racism as such originates in modern times since it is thought not to be attested earlier conventional wisdom usually denies that there was any race hatred in the ancient world the prejudices that existed so it is believed were ethnic or cultural and not racial but he says that i shall discuss three topics first he argues that the prototypes of racism were common in the greco-roman world second um he describes the close links between those forms of prejudice and ancient ideas about slavery. And lastly, he says um, he has something to say about the connection between these concepts and ancient imperialism. He starts by defining racism. And he says that the essence of racism is that it regards individuals as superior or inferior because they are believed to share imagined physical, mental, and moral attributes with the group to which they are deemed to belong. And it is assumed that they cannot change these traits individually. This is held to be impossible because these traits are determined by their physical makeup. This is a relatively broad definition, which allows us to recognize forms of racism that are not steered exclusively by biological determinism. And then he goes, further into um, concepts that promote racism in the ancient world. And this would be considered like a proto-racism, right? It's called environmental determinism. So in both Greek and Latin literature from the middle of the 5th century BC onwards, we encounter an almost generally accepted form of environmental determinism. This is first explicitly and extensively presented in the medical treaties Airs, waters, places, written at an uncertain date in the second half of the 5th century BC. The particular form of environmental determinism first found in this work became the generally accepted model in Greece and afterwards with variations in Rome. According to this view, collective characteristics of groups of people are are permanently determined by climate and geography. The implication is that the essential features of body and mind come from the outside and are not the result of either genetic evolution, social environment, or conscious choice. Individuality and individual change are thereby ignored and even excluded. This is definitely related to racist ideas as here defined. Entire nations are believed to have common characteristics determined wholly by factors outside themselves and which are, by implication, stable and unchangeable. These presumed characteristics are then subject to value judgments in which foreigners are usually rejected as being inferior to the observer or approved of as being untainted and superior in some respects. Such descriptions are, of course, not based on objective observations of reality. They are expressions of ethnic stereotypes and proto-racism. 
The essence of the concept of environmental determinism is found again in the work of Aristotle with some interesting variations. It is worth citing the text at some length. The, this is from Aristotle. The peoples of cold countries, generally and particularly those of Europe, are full of spirit and deficient in skill and intelligence. And this is why they continue to remain comparatively free but attain no political development and show no capacity for governing others. The peoples of Asia are endowed with skill and intelligence, but are deficient in spirit, and this is why they continue to be people of subjects and slaves. The Greeks, intermediate in geographical position, unite the qualities of both sets of peoples. It possesses both spirit and intelligence. The one quality makes it continue free. The other enables it to attain the heights political development, and to show a capacity for governing every other people, if only it could once achieve political unity. And lastly, from um, Isaac, these claims made environmental determinism a useful ideological tool for ambitious imperialists because it justified the conclusion that the Greeks were ideally capable of ruling others. Roman authors took over these ideas, duly substituting themselves as the ideal, ideal rulers and with some variations. Instead of the contrast between Europe and Asia, which the Greeks found essential, the geographical poles for most Roman authors are north and east. As clear examples of this pattern, um, you'll, uh, later he describes ancient views of the Germans and the Syrians. And... I read all this and say all this to support the idea that, you know, the ancients weren't blameless. Aristotle, who is touted as like one of the greatest ancient uh, thinkers, said that people of uh, the, the Greeks were superior in intellect and in spirit to people in surrounding areas, people throughout the world. I mean, that is what white um that is what white supremacists think they think that they being white people are superior to anybody else in the entire world so i mean i don't think that that aristotle and uh other greeks or so blameless as Snowden likes to purport. But, uh, you know, again, that's not the main point of this podcast, but it does give you some insight into like the origin and the histories of racism. It is not a modern world invention. Okay, so then race in itself, where did that come from? Well, we first start seeing race uh, formulate during the late Renaissance and during the Age of Reason or the Enlightenment. So Francois Brunet wrote in a French journal in 1684 uh, using a classification system for humans that emphasized physical traits using skin, color, hair form, and general appearance. His four classifications were Europeans, Far Easterners, 
Negroes or blacks and the Laps, whom he thought had faces like bears and were quite frightful. Francois Bonnet was a French physician and a traveler. He was born in 1620 and he was briefly a personal physician to a Mughal prince. And he ended up staying with the court after that prince was executed and he stayed with the court for 12 years. So the publication that I just referenced, the 1684 publication, was titled New Division of the Earth by Different Species or Races of, of Man that Inhabit It. And it was considered the first published post-classical classification of humans into distinct races. And really his, flat, his classifications contribute to the genesis of scientific racism. Because inherently in these classifications were um, this, these, these physical and biological differences in human appearances and thus that sought to suggest a scientific basis for human racial variation. He makes a distinction between physical variation due to environmental factors and racial factors. For instance, he classifies Indians that he is exposed to during his time with the Mughal courts as part of the white race. He asserts that Indians like Egyptians have a skin color that is accidental resulting from their exposure to the sun. However, when it comes to categorizing Africans, he notes that blackness is an essential feature of theirs. Now, let's... <laughs> sounds like to me that even though this is post-classical, it sounded real like Aristotle and the classical classifications of people based on the environmental theory. So, uh, environmental determination, environmental determinism. And um, Brene evidences the fact that, that black people's color is not due to environmental factors by asserting that they will be black even when living in colder climes. It almost seems like, you know, you're always going to be black. You was born black. You're always going to be black. You're going to die black. And um, that's just because that's who you are innately where, oh, these Indians and the Egyptians who also were of darker hue, hmm, they actually were turned black by the sun. And so really all the great things about them represent the great things about white people because they are white. All right, so Francois Bonnet. Oh, let's go further though. Most, hysteria, most historians of science consider the modern classifications of human populations to begin with Carl Linnaeus, who was a Swedish botanist. And in 1735, he published System Nature. Uh, that is me saying it in the English not the Latin, which was the first version of a vast classificatory scheme. And in this, he grouped human beings with higher primates under the order of Anthropomorpha. And then he divided the genus Homo, which is the humans, into four basic varieties. Europeans, Amer oh, the, the Latin terms are Europeus, Americanus, Asiaticus, and Africanus. And in those classifications, he gave descriptors. He said that the Europeus was, you know, the highest of the highest order. They were white, sanguine, muscular. Their hair was long, 
flowing. Their eyes were blue. They were gentle, acute, inventive. Uh, the European or the Europeus covers themselves with close vestments and they're governed by laws. Next would be the Asiaticus. They are sallow, melancholy, stiff. They have black hair, dark eyes, severe, haughty. They're severe, they're haughty, they're avaricious. They're covered with loose garments and they're ruled by opinions. You have the Americanus, who is reddish, choleric, and erect. Their hair is straight and black. They have thick, wide nostrils. They have scanty beards. They are obstinate, merry, and free. They paint themselves with fine red lines, and they're regulated by customs. And then lastly will be Africanus. That's black folk. And he says that black are phlegmatic. They have relaxed. They're phlegmatic and relaxed. Their hair is black and frizzled. Their skin is silky. Their nose is flat. Their lips are, are tumid. Um, wow. AKA swollen. <laughs> this is so crazy. The women are without shame. They lactate profusely. They, and then black or Africanus was crafty, indolent, negligent. They anoint themselves with grease and they are governed by caprice. And let me tell you, like those ideas still persist to this day. So I can um, buy the argument that, that Linnaeus created the first modern classification of humans, which um, that, it, that would be considered race. But again, there are prototypes that we cannot ignore and we cannot forget. But that's where race came from and that's where black came from. And so... Uh, another ad, so everything I just noted came from a book that I love. I read this when I was in college um, by Audrey Smedley, and it's called Race in North America, Origin and Evolution of a Worldview. Now, we've been hearing also a lot about anti-racism from Ibram Kendi. And while Ibram Kendi is not the founder or forerunner of anti-racism, he definitely is a champion of it in these uh, in these most in in these past years, and he's created um, anti-racist centers at different schools. One being American University, and I think he recently started one at Northwestern. But um, he talks about how race and the categorization and the hierarchy of race was created to justify slavery because think about it slavery and we're talking about transatlantic slavery let me be clear transatlantic slavery was taking place simultaneously with the enlightenment the age of reason um this in the renaissance i should say it started during the renaissance but it was at its height during the age of enlightenment and during both the Renaissance and the age of enlightenment, humanism is the order of the day, you know, egalitarianism, seeing people as humans, seeing people as equals is the order of the day. So how can you do that and justify slavery? How can you enslave humans on the one hand and then on the other hand say all men are created equal? Well, you can do that when you deem those men 
that you enslave as non-men. And you deem those men that you enslave as, as, as primates of a lower order. In, in, and when you deem them as inferior and, and not having any class, not having proper customs, being indolent, being stupid, then it's like, well, just like the white savior complex that exists today, going to come in, swoop in, and, you know, we're going to make something of these people's lives. So they need us as masters to direct them or else they'll be shiftless and lazy. And again, that idea has persisted in American race ideology for centuries. So um, I encourage you guys to check out the origin of uh, uh, race in North America, origin and evolution of a worldview. And I also encourage you to look at Ibram Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist and Stamped from the Beginning if you want to delve more into the origin of race. But race exists, and we know that it's a social construct, and we know it's a social construct that was created to, um, you know, create an inferior class and a superior class, much in alignment with capitalism. Y'all getting all my political views today, but, you know, it's a new day, it's a new year, and why not? I'm not holding back. So we understand race. So then how did we racially go from nigger to colored to Negro to black to Afro-American, African-American, and right on back to nigger. Well, let's talk about it. So um, by now, most people know that uh, I'm, I'm, I would be very surprised to find a person who doesn't know uh, that black people were first identified as niggers and that was seen as like standard and um i'm gonna cite i don't really like to use etym online for my research i like it as a starting point but i kind of view it as wikipedia you know i get information that spurs me to do more research but i'm gonna use etym online right now and what it states about the word nigger is 1786 it came uh, earlier, it was Neger, and that came from the Spanish Negro, which came from Latin. And the Latin origin of the word nigger um, and so, you know, these Negro and nigger and other variants came from Latin. Etymologically, Negro, Nuer, Negre, and Nigger ultimately derived from Nigrum, the stem of the Latin Niger, which means black. And the R was trilled, by the way, but I can't trill my R's, so you will not hear me do that. Um, but that's where it came from. It came from Latin, and it meant black. But as we know, the term was not created to just identify us descriptively. It was a term of subjugation and a term to deem us as inferior. Okay. And it still is today. 
So no, you can't say it. You know, <laughs> I'm just going to say I have had too many encounters in like the past five years of my life with white people saying, as they say, the N word. So I guess I'll go from here on out. I'm going to say the N word in this podcast. Um, yeah, I think the worst was when I was in, I was in, uh, Palo Alto, Silicon Valley for a debate camp. And there was a white woman who was kind of like the house mom where we stayed. And, you know, she was very much, I would consider a white liberal. And also we kind of a little bit bonded just slightly over, like an interest in language and etymology, right? <laughs> but the last day, when everybody left, but myself and maybe like two other people, she had a conversation with me. It was more, it was less a conversation and more of her telling me that she believed that white people should be allowed to say nigger because it destigmatizes it. Like, especially when talking about it in, um, academic context. And I want to say it was Henry Louis Gates who she cited as starting his classes off by having everybody say the word nigger. Like, ah, I guess I'm not using the N word. Sorry, but it's hard for me to say the N word. I hate that concept for me when I'm talking so candidly about this, but I don't want white people saying it. So um, I just want y'all to know, just because I'm saying it don't mean you, that you can. But anyway, she said, yeah, you know, they start, it's an exercise starting this class off saying nigger like multiple times. And she just said it over and over and over. Kind of like the Paul Mooney clip when he's like, he basically what? He brushes his teeth with nigger in the morning. I'm going to butcher that. I'm definitely butchering it. Ah, uh, yes. Well, white folks, you shouldn't have made up the word, as he says. Um, he says, I say nigga a hundred times every morning. It makes my teeth white. I mean, that's literally how I felt like this woman was saying it. And it wasn't just me. There were other people in the house and like they all started texting me like, what the fuck? I was like, yeah, that did happen. And like we were on this group. Um, we were on this group chat. And so there were people who had left the house getting on their planes and everything. And we were like, ping, 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 like. This is what the fuck is happening right now, right now. Um, so yeah, flabbergasted to say the least. And yet I'm not, you know, and yet I'm not. Uh, I, I really try my best to give people the benefit of the doubt, but they all, they, when it comes to race, people often prove me wrong when I give them the benefit of the doubt. So she was definitely one of them. Um, but we all understand N-word, nigga, nigras initially is a term that was not a, not a descriptor and was a slur and still is a slur. And no, you cannot say it if you ain't black. All right, so now let's talk about colored. Where did the term colored come from? Where did the term colored come from? So, 
Colored is said to hark back to an era of exclusion. Up painful memories. But of course, in South Africa, the term colored meant something completely different. It represented people of mixed race who back in the day would be called mulatto in America. But that is no longer acceptable unless you are a rapper <laughs> and your name is Mulatto. Then, you know, I guess we fucking with you. But yeah, we uh, colored means something different in South Africa. Um, but more about colored in the United States. So colored according to the Oxford English Dictionary, was usually considered offensive. But it was adopted in the United States by emancipated slaves as a term of racial pride after the end of the American Civil War. It was rapidly replaced from the late 1960s as a self-designation by Black and later by African American, although it is retained in the name of the NAACP, and in Britain, it was the accepted term for Black, Asian, or mixed people until the 1960s. All right. So color did have a positive connotation. And interestingly, Black did not. Black was considered at one point in time um, a derogatory identification. And, you know, I actually heard that. I've heard that from black people for a long time, but I actually heard that from my father. Um, my father is, oof, what, 74? No, my, my father's turning 74 this year. And he's, like I said earlier, he's from Alabama. So um, that was the culture. Black was not acceptable. Uh, colored was. And at one point, Negro was acceptable as well. But racial designations, as I as I mentioned earlier, go through, go through phases. So Negro, um, was used by Portuguese who first arrived in South Africa in 1442 while trying to find a way to India. And the term Negro literally meant black. It was used both by Spanish and the Portuguese to, to refer to the Bantu peoples. And, um, as I said earlier, it comes from the Latin Niger, which means black. And in the, from the 18th century to the late 1960s, Negro was considered to be the proper English language term for people of black African origin. And according to the Oxford dictionaries, uh, use of the word is outdated, but we still see it in some of the organizations that were created um, when the term Negro was acceptable and like that just wasn't changed. So we mentioned uh, the NAACP for colored while the United Negro College Fund is um, still an organization and still uses the term Negro. So when Negro superseded colored, this was a time when black was still considered to be offensive. And the term Negro had been also, according to one historian, used to describe Native Americans. Um, 
John Belton O'Neill's The Negro Law of South Carolina stipulated that the term Negro is confined to slave Africans and their descendants. It does not embrace the free inhabitants of Africa, such as the Egyptians, Moors, and Negro Asiatics, such as the Lascars. The American Negro Academy was founded in 1897 uh, to support liberal arts education. Marcus Garvey used the word in the names of black nationalists and pan-African organizations such as the United Negro Improvement Association, um, the Negro World, and the Negro Factories Corporation. And he created the Declaration of the Rights of the Negro People of the World. Du Bois and Carter G. Woodson used the titles in their nonfiction books, The Negro and the Miseducation of the Negro, respectively. So Negro was accepted as normal. It was considered both an exonym and an endonym. An exonym is um, a common external name for a geographical place or group of people. And an endonym is a common internal name for a geographical place or group of people. Um, so, you know, Negro, as I said, was acceptable. Negro was acceptable. And now the question is asked, when do we go from Negro to Black? So we went from Negro to Black in the 1960s with the advent of the Black Power Movement. And so until the late 1960s, Black was an insult for many Negroes, as I have mentioned. And the National Separatist Campaign for the term posed a test for conformity for both Negroes and whites. In addition to imposing new language on whites, it aimed at Black mobilization and self-assertion. So the term black was really utilized during the black power movement as a means for mobilizing black people. And in particular, it, it sought to create a distinction between um, Negroes who they considered to be middle-class and integrationists versus black people who are um, people who support black people from the ghetto, black people and uh, who were not uh, co-opted by the white majority. And so these were not integrationists by any means. They believed in separatism. Um, black represented self-sufficiency. We want to be separate because we don't want to take handouts. We don't want to just take what's given to us or accept what's given to us. We want to create and establish our own. So black really... Uh, referred to uh, a militancy. And Negro during the 60s were, was primarily used by middle class and older people, whereas Black was associated with youth and unity and pride. They said Negro also represented complacency and the status quo. Among nationally prominent Blacks, only a couple consistently condemned black power radicals and anti-white racism and separatism. Um, so the whole ideas, the ideology behind black, some people did not embrace that. They believed that we should try to integrate, that we should be seen as the human race and not as um, two, not try to separate ourselves. We should be seen as one. The black power movement rejected what they considered to be colorblindness of of Negroes. Um, 
and they rejected this at the individual level as a cultural suicide, demanding race consciousness as self-acceptance. Okay. Um, before mounting a racial revolution against whites, black power advocates posed a class and cultural confrontation against middle-class blacks to force on them the black power definition of group identity. So the term black is really one um, that denotes anti-bourgeoisie culture um, of the late 1960s and um, really represented the cultural values of lower class urban blacks as marks of racial loyalty. Now, um, I am citing a paper entitled From Negro to Black to African American, The Power of Names and Naming. And this was published in the spring of 1991 in the Political Science Quarterly by Ben L. Martin. So if you want a little bit more information, want to do some research yourself, please check out that paper. But then we went from black to Afro to African-American. And so let's talk about the African-American. So I don't know how many people are old enough to remember this. I was literally four when this happened, but I was alive during the shift. Um, and so in December 1988, a new, during a news conference at Chicago Highest Regency O'Hare Hotel, um, Jesse Jackson announced that members of their of his race preferred to be called African-American and the campaign he then led to replace the term black. Um, it actually met immediate success among African, among African-American opinion makers and more gradual acceptance in the national press. And Jesse Jackson did this because he said it gives us cultural integrity. It puts us in a proper historical context. Every ethnic group in this country has a reference to some land base, some historical cultural base. African-Americans have hit that level of cultural maturity. There are Armenian Americans and Jewish Americans and Arab Americans and Italian Americans. And with a degree of accepted and reasonable, reasonable pride, they connect their heritage to their mother country and where they are now. And so black, Negro, colored, none of those connect us to our roots, which is Africa. And so uh, Jesse Jackson proposed this new um, idealization of ourselves to conceive race relations as a multi-ethnic plural pluralism. Um, he, he himself called for ethnic consciousness. He says, other American ethnic groups maintain their national styles, live in the same neighborhoods, visit the old country, have ha and have ethnic holidays. The continuity between the roots and fruits of those ethnic groups remains. But the continuity between our root in Africa and our fruit in America has been broken. So really, this is, again, a changing of, of how we see ourselves through naming and for the purpose of racial pride. Um, ben Martin states that names can be more than tags. They can convey powerful imagery. So naming, proposing, imposing, and accepting names can be a political exercise. So all of these name changes have happened in the name of politics, in the name of reaffirming ourselves um, in, in, in a space of love and honoring and self-acceptance. Self and it's also political motivation 
for us to seek redress for all the wrongs that have been enacted against us as black people, as African-Americans, as Negroes, when we were colored, when we was Negras, like all those things that have happened to us, part of our way to, um, you know, I mean, I don't think you can ever rectify the wrong. You can never rectify it, right? But part of our way of being able to have the same rights and opportunities in this country as others is said to come through how we see ourselves, how we identify ourselves. Calling ourselves African-American is a tribute to ourselves that we have sought to restore our cultural umbilical cord in the face of the persistence of white America to drum inferiority into us. That was stated uh, by the Boston Globe writer Derek Z. Jackson. And um, he stated that in 1989. Now, some people do not like the term African-American because they feel they have no connection to Africa whatsoever. Um, which is interesting because black people, or the term black emerged from the black power movement. And part of that was promoting our, our connection to Africa. Like we can't deny that we may not have, uh, we may not know exactly where we come from in Africa. We may not even be able to speak. We may, well, a lot of us can't speak the languages, right? Like we don't, it's not the same as, um, someone who is Asian America Asian American and um, has the same traditions as those of their homeland. However, uh, you know, the, our connection to Africa m- may be abstract, but but research shows that there's a place for the abstract elements of West African cultures that have survived for a time among slaves in America. Um, and, and, you know, we don't necessarily need tangible carryovers. Among the traits of contemporary African-Americans said to be African retentions are an emphasis on the spoken rather than the written word, incessant African rhythms that came to the vocabulary of music with the concept of beat, a riff style flexibility and an open disposition toward the vernacular, emphasis on the nonverbal, in other words, the non-conceptual and some food staples like black eyed peas, okra and yams. And let me just take this moment to say, I do another um, aspect of my lineage is that my mother is South, she's from South Carolina. She's from Georgetown, South Carolina, which is the low country and um, we are we are of Gullah ancestry and heritage, and so you know there are there's been a lot of research done on the retention of African culture within the Gullah tradition, um, and then also like the creation of something new, which is what a lot of people argue about when they say you know we are black and not African American. We don't we don't we don't represent African culture. We have created a distinctly black American culture from our cuisine of low edible, low cost edibles to more, um, indigenous. I mean, yeah, our cuisine of low cost edibles to a distinctly black American patois firmly rooted in English language. That would be 
AAVE, African American Vernacular English, or as April Baker Bell says, Black English, right? And Gullah will be another example of, you know, a patois that has emerged that is not distinctly African. So I get that, but we can't separate and act as if we cannot separate ourselves from Africa and act as if we do not have any Africanness within us. Um, we should always, we should embrace the concept of Sankofa, which is that Adinkra symbol that basically means to know where you're going, you have to know your past, right? So um, this is not me making the case for why we should be African-American and not black, because I believe there are political implications be behind being black, um, particularly Pan-African Impl uh, uh, political implications that are pan-African in nature. Uh, however, let's not act like we ain't African or we don't have no African aspects to us. Okay, so, you know, here we are. We black. We also African-American. We definitely not Negro or colored. We are people of color. How do we get back to nigga? Well, that's pretty simple. That's probably the easiest uh, for me to de describe it's it's about reclaiming. I mean we see this in various with various terms that were initially used as a way to downcast us or use as a slur. So an example would be um, slut right So uh, I have this book I have not read it yet but I am super excited. It's on my list to read this year. It's called Word Slut by Amanda Montel. Um, it's, it's the, the subtitle is The Feminist Guide to Taking Back the English Language. And damn it, if feminists can do it, uh, black folk can too. So I, I support the reclaiming of nigga, right? Um, that's just me. And you got to know how to use it, know when to use it know the context. It's just like bitch. I posted something about this the other day. Bitch, that might be a reclaiming, a feminist reclaiming as well. Um, like I use it. It's one of my favorite words. I told my principal that. that she asked us, what's our favorite word? It could be whatever. I said bitch. And it's because bitch can like encompass so much. Like if a guy calls me a bitch, oh, then fighting words. But if my girl called me a bitch and she's like, bitch, did you see? what such and such just posted bitch oh my gosh i have some tea to spill you know like it has so many usages um that women have and i would say black women if i must be honest predominantly black women have really brought out from a term that has been used to uh use as a slur against us well nigga acts in the same way so um I embrace it. I, I recognize we have all these different terms that we've been called and classified. And I know when Talib Kweli, um, you know, made that song for women and he said that we went from nigger right back to nigger. I don't believe he said that in celebration of going back to nigger. But um, I mean, it's where we are. I that, That's what I've had to learn. As an etymologist, I love to look at the origin of things, but I also like to look at where we are today and how we got there. And, you know, that's us. We claim that. We decided this is what we want to say and how we want to, like, call our friends. That's my nigga over there, right? 
now everybody ain't with that shit and I get that and um like I wouldn't use I, I in other words, I know how to be selective about the words I use and who I use them with and also I'm an evolution in the process so you know Paul Mooney he actually said he wasn't going to use the n-word anymore in any of his jokes um and his stand-up routines you know I ain't there I could get there though I'm open but uh right now it works for me but I I, I know who I am and I'm firm in myself as a black person as an african-american as a person of color um the last thing I want to note is that you know, this is kind of a little bit more fringe, but you do have a group of people who don't want to identify as any of those things. Um, oh, another thing I do identify myself is like as a pan-Africanist, definitely that. Um, but yes, anyway, there are some people who don't believe that they are Negro, Black, colored, Ethiopian, and I guess today they wouldn't call themselves African-Americans. They would call themselves Moors. And so if you've ever heard of the Moorish Science Temple of America, if you ever heard of the Moorish movement started by Timothy Drew, also known as Noble Drew Ali, you know that there's a body of people um, who would say, like, I'm not black because that was a name that was put upon me by slave, by um, slave masters and... Um, it was put upon me for the purposes of subjugation. Like everything that I've been talking about, I mean, they're not incorrect, right? Like us being classified as a race in general was initially for subjugation purposes. And so I think it's really worth mentioning this because Noble Drelli talked about how we're none of those terms, Negro, Black, or colored, or Ethiopian, in like the early 1900s. Um, so when we talk about critical race theory now, like this is an idea that we're still really debating. Um, what we some people, I guess, are still debating like who we are and what we call ourselves. And it's just interesting that it was first thought of like almost a hundred years ago. Um, now more is interesting. You see the term more historically referring to black people, but you also see it being referred used for people who are of a darker hue who would not traditionally traditionally be called black. So one example uh, I can give are in the Philippines, you have um, So an example of this would be the Sri Lankan Moors. Who, which are a minority Muslim group in Sri Lanka. You also had the term more used as a variant name for Melungians, which was a tri-racial isolate group in colonial North America. Um, you know, traditionally, we when we hear more, people think of the Muslim inhabitants of the Maghrib, the Iberian Peninsula, Sicily, and Malta during the Middle Ages. Um, so... I guess the point is, is that more is meant to represent people of a darker hue, darker complexion. And those are people who have been the victims of colonization worldwide. And so that it's almost like using it in place of people of color. So people of color or Moors are synonymous. 
So those are the various terms. Those are the various names that black people have had over time. I am not here to promote one over the other. I just want to put the information out there and I would love to hear from y'all and hear what you think. If you hated this, let me know. If you loved it, let me know. If you're angry with me because I said the N-word so many times, you can let me know that too. If you want to reach out and be like, oh my gosh, Libe, you my nigga. You could do that too. Like, I'm here for all of it. I want to hear feedback. I want to hear what y'all want to, I want to hear more about what y'all want to hear as well. So I'm taking recommendations. Um, I plan on doing some interviews as well. So yeah, Etymology Rules Podcast is on and popping. The last thing I want to say is this book, y'all, Etymology Rules Back to Basics. I don't know if I told y'all, but um, self-publishing is the devil. (laughs) Don't do it. It's not for the faint of heart. But uh, seriously, I found a wonderful editor and she's been working on the book. And so... We, I just got it back and, you know, I have some touch-ups to do, but um, my goal is to have this out by mid-March, so I'm going to be doing some pre-sales soon, so look out for that. My website, etymologyrules.com, is being revamped, so I would say in the next two weeks, check it out as well, but you'll hear me talk about this more because I'm doing a podcast every week. So come back next week for another installment of Edamaya Rules. Edamaya Rules podcast. And this will be another Black History, another another podcast that focuses on Black History. And um, I got a couple of Now it's time to say goodbye to Jed and all his kin. They would like to thank you folks for kindly dropping in. You're all invited back next week to this locality to have a heaping helping of their hospitality. Hillbilly, that is. Saddest Bell, take your shoes off. Y'all come back now, dear.